Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Via the website, but we would love to find out more about you and answer any questions you'd have. So please, that's Wednesday, this Wednesday, 8 o'clock. Well, what can I say? Fabulous to be here this morning. Fabulous to be with you both in the room and online. And we come this morning to the last part of our series looking at the book of Daniel. We've looked at the first six chapters. They're full of great stories. We've taken one chapter each week. Last week, Paul talked about spiritual warfare, taking as his springboard the astonishing insight into the spiritual realm that Daniel is given in chapter 10. And this final week, I'm going to use chapters 7 to 12 as a launch pad in a similar way. To look at the prophetic word of God given to Daniel in a series of dreams and visions. To consider the place of prophecy nowadays. And to see what these chapters might have to say to us today. Given that many of the events they describe are by now ancient history. Many, but not all. And my pledge to you, if you're worried by that prospect, is that we will do all this and we will still be finished in time for lunch. So let me say at the start... The whole of the book of Daniel is supernatural. Now, by supernatural, I don't mean ghosts. I don't mean spooky stuff. The word just means beyond what is natural, more than simply the physical world. And, of course, God is real, but he is spirit. He is beyond the confines of the physical world. And because he is the all-powerful creator of everything, he's not limited by the laws of our physical world, which he has made And because he's eternal, he's beyond time. He is before and after everything. So for God to speak in dreams, as he did to Nebuchadnezzar, and to reveal the interpretation, as he did to Daniel, concerning future events, for God to keep his people miraculously safe in a superheated furnace and in a den of lions, to drive a king mad and then to restore his sanity, For disembodied fingers to appear and write on a wall words of judgment for another king, which immediately came true. All of this is natural for a supernatural God. And the first six chapters of Daniel are no less supernatural than all that follows in the second half. But for all that, we do now go up a gear. And Daniel himself, as Paul said last week, Daniel found it no easier to cope with than perhaps we do. Daniel himself describes in these chapters the visions and dreams he's given over a number of years. They're dated over the reigns of three kings. They're all when he is elderly, and he he details the understanding he is also given supernaturally in varying degrees, the understanding of what the visions describe. So just bear with me for the next two and a half minutes. In the first vision... He sees four beasts, one after another, representing four kingdoms, the last of which is different from the others and is terrifying. And this kingdom covers the whole earth. And this this beast has a horn which comes from its head. And the horns symbolize powerful rulers. And the final horn is the worst of all. And it makes war on God's people and oppresses the saints until God himself, the ancient of days, steps in. And his power is destroyed and power is handed over to the saints of the Most High and his kingdom is established forever. Two years later, he has another vision about a ram and a goat and more horns, the last of which becomes incredibly strong and sets itself up against God and desecrates his temple. 
And the angel Gabriel gives Daniel the interpretation that the ram and the goat are the kingdoms of Persia and of Greece that are to come. And the horn is understood to refer to a Greek ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, who declared himself to be God, who committed horrendous atrocities against the Jews, who rededicated the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus, sacrificing a pig on the altar, an utter abomination to Jews, before he was destroyed, as Gabriel says, not by human power. The third vision comes when Daniel is seeking God about the future of the Jews and of Jerusalem, on the basis of Jeremiah's prophecies about a 70-year exile in Babylon which was by now almost complete. And Daniel says he turned to God and pleaded with him in prayer and in petition and in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And Gabriel comes in response to give him an answer, which is instead about the real restoration of God's people, much further ahead, when Jesus comes to deliver and to restore completely as the text says, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And then finally, and most troublingly to him, he has a revelation, followed by a vision three weeks later, when an angel appears and says, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And the vision gives a detailed and accurate narrative of history from about 530 BC to 164 BC, ending once again with the horrors of Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, that's it. Now, as you may know, there are many views and much debate about the meaning of some of the prophecies here. But that summary I just gave, that's taken either straight from the text or from what is generally accepted to be true by way of interpretation of it. Now, it could not possibly all have been clear to Daniel, even after the angels interpreted it to him. It's not all clear to us. There are bits we get, and there are bits we struggle with. And crucially, you have to understand that parts of the prophecies are not simply about what is to us now history. As with other biblical prophecy, much of it is multi-layered. It looks forward to fulfillment on multiple horizons, including what is still in the future even now, namely the end of human history at the end of time. So no wonder if it's not all clear to us today. But let's be clear about this. We are talking here about prophecy that supernaturally predicts the future because God himself is revealing it. And that, that's of course too much for many people. So you have to be careful what you read and what you believe. Because if you read Wikipedia, for instance, it will tell you that Daniel is now generally accepted to be a fictional character. The book is written in the second century BC specifically to address the circumstances of the Jewish persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. But of course, you have to say that if you have no room in your mind for a supernatural God or for divine revelation. In particular, you see, the narrative in that fourth vision, it's so obviously and remarkably historically accurate that that accuracy itself becomes the main argument that it could not possibly have been written before those events. But, as I remember my religious studies teacher at school saying about modern analysis of the impossible story of the crossing of the Red Sea. He said, one option is this. If God is God, 
then he can do it as described. And if God is God, then of course he can reveal the future. Just like he can deliver from the fiery furnace. Just like he can shut the lion's mouths. Easy. So be careful what you read and believe. If you will only remain open to the reality of a supernatural God, then I promise you that the natural dating of the book to the 6th century BC, to Daniel's time, it stands up very well to intellectual scrutiny. And here's a clincher. Jesus himself knew the book of Daniel. He called Daniel a prophet. He quoted him. And he identified himself as the fulfillment of prophecy in Daniel, as we shall see. Right, let's give you a breather there, shall we? Let's change tack for a few minutes. Before we come back to Daniel and the relevance of these ancient prophecies to us today, let's talk for a minute about modern prophecy. And I don't mean in the context of the local church where one brother has a word of prophecy for another or for the church, for their strengthening and encouragement and comfort, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. This is in the context of the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work within the body for the common good. And we're going to look at that in a few months' time. We're going to have a series on the gifts of the Spirit in the church today. That's prophecy in the the more normal New Testament sense. Not predicting the future, not foretelling, but forthtelling. Speaking out the Spirit-inspired Word of God for the building up of others. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I'm talking about the public prophets, or so-called prophets in some cases, who speak to a wider audience on TV or online, who claim to bring the word of the Lord about the state of the church or the world today, and who very frequently do predict the future, sometimes in very general terms, sometimes very specifically. Prophets who may or may not be accountable further down the line for what they say, who speak not only of small things, but also of Brexit in the EU, or the revival that is coming, or God's judgment on the nations, the purposes of God for the state of Israel, of the Antichrist, the forthcoming one world government, of the end times, who are usually very certain of what they say in the Lord's name, and who sometimes speak the equivalent of woe to you if you reject God by not accepting their words. You don't have to look very far online on almost any Christian topic before you will come across them. So what should we make of them? Well, as long as there have been prophets, there have also been false prophets. So that fact alone means that we need to be careful. We need some means of filtering what we hear to be able to decide what to accept, what to reject, and what to park, rather than uncritically accepting whatever comes to us in God's name claiming to be his word. Because it may, at best, simply be wrong and at worst, actually be harmful if we take it on board. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that all such people are charlatans or deceivers. But Scripture tells us to test the spirits, to be sober-minded, not to abandon sound doctrine to hear what our itching ears want to hear, not to be blown here and there by winds of teaching, And there's such a thing as spiritual discernment. So we have to be wise. Because there's a real risk of being drawn off down the wrong track 
by something that sounds new or exciting or that gives us special insight so that we're now in the know. We understand the real spiritual dynamic of what's going on. Let's be honest, there's an appeal to our vanity there that can make us vulnerable. Now, there are false prophets, pure and simple. Then there are also those who deliberately or otherwise have mixed up a good deal of self-promotion and self-seeking along with perhaps a genuine desire to serve God. Then there are some who are blinded by their own preset convictions and spiritual agendas, who are certain and dogmatic, who do not show any humility or the wisdom from above that is gentle and open to reason, as James describes it. There are those who genuinely hear God, but in what we might call their spiritual exuberance, they unwittingly stray by going beyond what God has actually said. Or they misapply it by trying to pin it down where God has left it open. Or they assume the application is immediate where it may be in the future. I have made all those mistakes. And then there are those who humbly and faithfully seek God and hear his voice. And for no other reason than to glorify him and to be obedient, they tell out what they have received as and when he leads them with no desire at all for their own honor. But you have to remember, none of us are scripture. The very best of us will prophesy in part, as Paul says. None of us will get it all right. There are some well-known names in America who have publicly apologized for getting it wrong in prophesying Trump's re-election. I don't know them, but that is at least a good sign as regards their heart Rather than saying, as some would do, well, actually, I meant 2024. That's, that's where I got it wrong. So in the light of this, let me just suggest some useful safeguards, some filters to apply when we turn on the TV or when we go online and read and hear such prophecies. We can ask ourselves, do I have the discernment to filter this? What is my filter mechanism here for distinguishing what to accept and what to reject? Before you accept it, ask yourself, on what basis are you doing so? Why do I think this is the word of God? And if you're not sure, you don't have to reject it. You can just park it, put it on the shelf for now. That's fine. You don't have to make a judgment, come to a decision about things and situations you're not equipped to weigh up with godly wisdom. Secondly, you can ask, is this for me? Even if it was God's word, is there anything I should do in response? Anything I should do differently? Or is it just spiritual inside knowledge? If not, if God is not speaking to me, then it probably doesn't matter too much. Again, it is fine just to park it. You can ask yourself, is it clear why God is saying this? If it's true, is it glorifying him? Or is it simply promoting the prophet? Paul and I were in Ghana a few years ago before they had elections. And we saw in the newspaper a group of church leaders had pleaded with the prophets to stop prophesying the result of the election because this lot were prophesying he would win and this lot were prophesying he would win. Please just stop. Why not just wait and see? See, prophecy is not a predicting competition. God doesn't need to show off. If you feel God is speaking in some way that may be relevant to you, are you prepared to submit it to others? Ask what they think. Proverbs tells us that in many counselors, there is safety 
Whereas pride says, I've got this, I don't need any help. But God blesses the humility involved in not going it alone. Discernment is often not an individual business. Truth isn't afraid of being tested. Fifthly, however convinced you are that you are hearing God through somebody, or even yourself, are you still open to the possibility that you might have got it wrong? Because if not, then by definition you are in unbiblical waters and you're in dangerous territory. An insistence that you are right and that there's no other point of view is a very worrying sign. Sixthly, ask if you are in any way being pressured into accepting what you're hearing by warnings of what will happen if you don't or by the threat of missing out on God's blessing. Because you see, God isn't harsh. He won't judge you for honestly getting it wrong. If you do. Far better to hold back out of integrity than to rush in through fear or through pressure. Now please hear me. I am not attacking anybody. I know there are people who are gifted and called to hear God and to speak out his prophetic word, whether or not they give themselves the title of prophet. And the real thing is incredibly precious. Some of you I know have particular websites you follow. That's fine. My concern is simply that we guard ourselves spiritually online, just as we do in every other way online. That we take responsibility for our own spiritual well-being. You see, we need a spiritual antivirus program when we go online because with so many voices, we need to be wise. Neither cynically rejecting everything nor gullibly accepting everything, but rather weighing carefully what is said, as Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians. Okay, let's go back to Scripture, which alone is the pure and eternal spirit-breathed word of God which never gets it wrong. Now the question surely we would ask, believing that Daniel has indeed heard the genuine word of God, revealing accurately and in an astonishing way the future, surely the question is, why? Why in chapter 2 did God give Nebuchadnezzar a dream of the four kingdoms, the great God showing the king what will take place in the future, as Daniel says? What did it matter to Nebuchadnezzar? What did it matter to Daniel to have revealed to him in chapter 11 what will happen over the next 370 years? What did he care about the ram and the goat, the kingdoms of Persia and Greece, and even the horn that was Antiochus Epiphanes coming after them? And what does it matter to us today? Well, the answer, surely, is an answer for every generation throughout the ages. That God is declaring aloud his sovereignty, his total and complete rule and authority over all creation, including the affairs of little men on planet Earth. As God declares in Isaiah 43, from ancient days, from eternity, I am he. When I act, who can reverse it? As the psalmist declares, he does whatever pleases him. God is in charge of all things, from the very smallest to the greatest. Nothing escapes him and nothing is too hard for him. One commentator puts it like this. God is in control in spite of present circumstances. In 6th century Babylon, it looked to the godly as if Babylon and then Persia were in control, but they weren't. In 2nd century Palestine, it looked as if Antiochus Epiphanes was in control, but he wasn't. 
in the first century of Jesus and Paul. It looked as if Rome was in control, but he wasn't. To Christians living 2,000 years after Jesus, it may look as if Satan is in control, but he isn't. God is in control. And because of that, we can have boundless joy and optimism in the midst of our struggles. And we do have struggles. But whatever the struggle, whatever the oppression, God is in control and in spite of present appearances, he will bring victory over evil and honor to those who remain faithful to him. The book of Daniel is a call to all God's people to remain steadfast in their love and obedience to him in spite of present turmoil. That is true. God is in total and utter control. That is the one overriding message of the book of Daniel that as we read in chapter 4, the Most High is sovereign. That means he holds supreme and ultimate power. He is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And that's what he's showing in these prophecies to Daniel. He knows exactly what is going to happen for all the centuries to come because he is in control of it. It will happen only as he decides and as he permits. So to proud rulers like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, he says, before me you're nothing. I determine where you start and where you finish. And it's equally true throughout history in every nation across the globe and in our day, in Russia and China and America and Europe. God is in control. So when we are angry at injustice and oppression, we need to know God is in control. To this will I appeal, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, Psalm 77. That's what I'll do. I'll call out to the one who's in charge. And when we're fearful of what is happening in the world, we need to remember God is in control. The nations are like a drop in a bucket, Isaiah 40. They're like dust on the scales. They're like nothing. Therefore, Psalm 46, we will not fear. And though evil may hold sway for a while, God will bring an end to it. That's what these prophecies of Daniel show repeatedly. That on one level is surely why God revealed these things to Daniel. Centuries later, it would speak to the Jews suffering under Antiochus that God knew that he was in charge, that there was a time set when it would come to an end. And that should speak to us when we suffer, when we are persecuted and worse. God is in control. There will be an end to it. And yet, we do suffer. And in some cases, we die. And this brings us to the final reference point of the prophecies in Daniel. They refer to the relatively near future. They refer to the distant future, to the time of Antiochus and to the coming of Christ. And they refer also to the end of time and to the final judgment of Satan and to the return of Christ and to his eternal rule with and for his people forever. They are, if you like, the book of revelation of the Old Testament. And the language used and the story they tell is often almost identical. Let's go back to chapter 7, where Daniel sees the fourth terrifying beast and the last and worst horn that wages war against the saints, defeating them, oppressing them, as for a time they are handed over to him. John Lennox, this wonderful book about the book of Daniel, Against the Flow, John Lennox writes this about the chapter. 
Now, God reveals to Daniel that his three friends had been right when they said that God might not always deliver his people from suffering and oppression. Powerful and ruthless enemies would arise one day, wage outright war against God's people, savage and kill them. The horn on the fourth beast represents one of those enemies. The 20th century was the bloodiest in history, with millions perishing to satisfy the animal lust for power in dictatorships of both right and left. The crimes of Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot are beyond comprehension. In the hands of such beasts, many millions perished, Christians and those of other faiths, and none. So what should we think then? when we consider the many faithful believers who have been and are being subjected to every kind of hideous torture and method of killing that powerful, heartless human beasts can devise, and yet God appears to do nothing. Daniel certainly does not hesitate to raise this issue several times. It disturbed Daniel. It continues to disturb us. How can we make any sense of it? If God can deliver his people, why doesn't he? If God can prevent suffering, why doesn't he? The problem of moral evil is inescapable. What is the answer to it? His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, this vision gives three responses to the problem of evil. There is to be a judgment. The Son of Man will come and the saints will receive the kingdom. And Lennox continues, whatever the detail of the vision may mean, the key message is crystal clear. This world is not going to be trampled and smashed by brutal, amoral regimes forever. A day will come when God will bring to an end the state war machines, the terrorist bombs, the consummate evil of totalitarian oppression, the gas chambers, the death camps, the killing fields, and countless other infamous instruments of death. There will be a judgment there will be a judgment for men, an eternal fire for Satan, as Daniel and Revelation both describe. And the Son of Man will come. Before his crucifixion, Jesus was brought before the high priest who demanded of him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am, he replied, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, exactly as Daniel saw in his vision. And 600 years after Daniel, John too has a vision on the island of Patmos. He hears a loud voice speaking behind him and he turns and sees someone like a Son of Man 
The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. And that is the answer to the problem of evil. There will be a judgment and the Son of Man will come and he holds the keys of death and hell. There will be a resurrection to eternal life and as Daniel 7 goes on to say, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. And this is why Daniel's visions are important for this age as for every age. As our own culture turns not just away from God, but actually anti-God. No doubt some of us, many of us, will suffer in one way or another in the days to come. I wish it weren't so. I wish there was no suffering of the saints as Daniel sees before the end. I wish there was no beast and no horns, no great tribulation as we read in Revelation. But there will be. And we are all called in some way, as Paul says, to share in the sufferings of Christ. But Daniel is there to show us the biggest of all big pictures and to tell us, stand firm, whatever the cost, it is worth any cost because God is in control. And whatever he allows in the meantime, we can be absolutely sure that at the end of it all, Jesus wins totally. We will see the final fulfillment of the victory he won on the cross. And gloriously, we will win with him and will inherit the kingdom. So we don't have to worry about what is ahead. We just have to live each day faithfully, one at a time, as they come, knowing that whatever happens on this earth, we are eternally safe in the hands of God. And Daniel's closing words to us might be the same as the closing words the angel spoke to him at the very end of chapter 12. These things are sealed up until the time of the end, the angel says. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Now that we know these things, that's enough. Our job now in the light of that knowledge, is simply to get on with today, living each day faithfully, whatever it brings, with all our might to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we pray you would write your word on our hearts as you did to Daniel, that we would know that this world, that this cosmos is in the hands of the living God. That you are in total and utter control. Lord God, may we put our trust completely in you. Lord, will you give us the strength, the confidence to live for you every day, whatever it brings. Lord God, if we come to a time of trial, we ask that you'll only keep our eyes fixed on you at that day. 
that we may look to you and draw strength from you, that you will help us to remain faithful, whatever it takes. That's all we ask, Lord. We may remain faithful to the end. And Lord, we thank you for the assurance, the utter certainty, a final victory, that God wins, that Jesus wins, and we will rise with him. And Lord Jesus, we pray you write that sure hope on our hearts, that it may sustain us and determine Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.